Every step of the way during this conference, I have sought um, to persuade, not with arguments, but with storytelling. I said repeatedly that I'm bowing out of the cultural arguments of this cultural moment and choosing instead to tell a story that surpasses this cultural moment. And that story is the story of erotic love, which I am arguing is at the center of God's story and ours. We began with the revelation of Eros as the Trinity's eternal exchange of love. And this eternal exchange is found in his image bearers where male and female likewise participate in an an exchange of love through their erotic one flesh union. And this eternal exchange is something that we have in many ways made a mess of. As we saw last night, we discussed the redirection of Eros, where erotic love turned inward, redirected away from the Trinity and toward the self. This selfless erotic love is replaced by selfish erotic lust. And it was heavy, and it was painful for all of us in different ways. Today we get to watch God rescue Eros from what we have done to it. And amazingly, he is going to use sex to rescue sex. I'm calling this the resurrection of Eros. The first seminal word from Jesus that John Paul uses to explore creation is from the beginning it was not so. The second word from Jesus that John Paul uses to explore the fall is anyone who looks upon another to lust after them has committed adultery. This morning, we turn to the third seminal word from Jesus that John Paul explores, and it comes from a discussion with the Sadducees. The Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe that there would be a final resurrection of the dead. If you're unfamiliar with Christian teaching, it's important for you to know, especially for this lecture, that we do not believe souls going to heaven after death is the end. We believe that just like Jesus is risen from the dead... When he returns, we too shall be raised from the dead. In fact, all of creation will go through a resurrection of sorts. And in this way, our final destiny will be heaven on earth, a resurrected earth. Well, the Sadducees didn't believe that. And so they come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection that they think will stump him. I won't read the whole passage, but essentially they present Jesus this scenario of a wife whose husband dies, and she remarries, and that husband dies, and she remarries, and that husband dies, and she remarries again, and so forth. So a woman with multiple husbands in this life. Then they ask Jesus, so in this supposed resurrection that you speak of, who will she be married to? And when we understand the answer Jesus gives, John Paul argues we will understand the full and final meaning of eros. Jesus says, in the resurrection, in the resurrection, they shall neither marry nor be given in marriage. Nobody will be married in the resurrection and nobody will get married in the resurrection. At first glance, this seems to go against everything we have been discussing this far. Perhaps we have overstated the glory 
of gender and sex and marriage as the high point of God's image and creation. How could it be so central to creation if it has no place in resurrected creation? John Paul argues that the true mystery of erotic love is unveiled when we answer the question, why will there be no marriage or giving of marriage in the resurrection? And the answer is astounding. We won't be married to each other, and we won't marry each other because we will be married to God. The Bible begins with marriage, and it ends with marriage. But they are different marriages. In the beginning, Adam marries Eve. In the end, at the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God who dies to purify his people, marries his pure bride for whom he dies. Here is the great mystery. Let me state it up front, and then we will spend plenty of time unpacking it. In creation, God gave erotic love between male and female as an icon of the eternal exchange of love the Trinity has forever experienced. But it's just an icon, an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. We don't sexualize the Trinity. The Trinity gave us sex as an illustration of what he has forever enjoyed. Well, in the resurrection, the bride of Christ is married to the bridegroom Jesus, meaning we marry into the family. At that point, who cares about sex? We get let in on that which sex has always pointed toward. The icon gives way to reality, and our destiny is to enjoy the eternal love exchange of God forevermore. That's a lot. Let's back up and watch it unfold. After the fall of Genesis 3 that we discussed last night, God's glorious story of creation turns into his glorious story of redemption. And as only God can do, far from ruining his plan, he takes the fall and writes an even better story. It's the ultimate way. You meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, don't go trying to understand mysteries that you cannot understand. Was this God's plan all along? Did he ordain the fall to write this better story? Theologians have been debating those questions for centuries. I promise you're not going to get anywhere that they haven't, which is essentially nowhere. At the end of the day, we must be okay with mystery. Some things belong only to God. But the reality is this. We ruined Eros, but God then uses Eros to rescue Eros. And in the end, the Eros we enjoy far surpasses the Eros we lost. Let me tell you that story. And then we will end our conference with final applications. God's word to Satan in Genesis 3 directly after the fall is this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Now, if you're a part of our church community, you've heard that verse many times. It is the go-to verse of covenant theology. But now, in light of everything that we have discussed at this conference, I wonder if it takes on a different meaning. God is going to crush Satan through the coming seed of a woman. Do you know what that means? God is going to use sex to win the cosmic battle. Generation 
after generation, after generation, after generation of erotic love is going to yield salvation. Countless male and female one flesh unions are going to bring the Genesis 3.15 promise to the world. I told you on Thursday, the genitals declare the love of the Lord. Well, after the fall, that takes on a whole new meaning. The genitals declare the saving love of the Lord. Quite literally, the genitals now preach the gospel. By the way, everyone's giving me a hard time about using that word. I've been told that among some attending online, they create a drinking game where every time I say that word, they take a sip. (laughs) And you know who you are. And if so, they didn't get through my talks. (laughs) And at the party last night, all the parents were giving me a hard time for using the word. Because their kids don't know what it means. They know the slang for those parts, but not the word genitals. Well, I'm sorry. Teach your kids what it means. (laughs) I would much rather confuse your kids with words they don't know than give the older among us heart attacks with words they do know. (laughs) But seriously, we have to recapture the word. Because the word by itself contests the confusion all around us. Gender is determined by genitals, which create generations. That singular sentence is our answer to every ethical question of our day. Gender is determined by genitals. And how are you to use your genitals in a way that creates generations? So that's my defense of genitals. If you're playing the drinking game at home, first, it's the morning and you need to seek help. (laughs) Second, once again, you're in trouble. Back to what I was saying. What God says in Genesis 3.15 is that the genitals not only proclaim the love of God that he has forever enjoyed in himself, they now proclaim the love of God for sinners. The genitals now preach the gospel. Don't believe me? You think I'm reading too much into this? Well, how about we consider something else you've always known in light of what we've learned at this conference? What was God's covenant sign in the Old Testament? Oh, that's why. (laughs) Now that crazy sign makes sense. Every generation of penises were circumcised as a sign of God's promise sealed in blood because one of those penises would deliver the sacred seed that would keep the promise of God's love alive for another generation. But the seed is nothing without the uniqueness of the female body, without a womb where life is conceived and nurtured, which is why the female body, more than the male body, more than the male body, Hold prominence in God's story of redemption. Oh, sisters, your body is holy ground. In my first talk, I alluded to the fact that the female body, as the only part of creation fashioned from God's image, is quite literally the high point of all creation, the highest glory and beauty we see on earth. Well, in the same way, 
Your body is also the high point of redemption. If you want to know what is most sacred to God, find what is most hated by the enemy. And more than anything else, Satan hates the female body, the uniqueness of the female body. Satan hates the womb. You turn again to Genesis 3. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's the woman Satan is after. It's the womb, that holy sanctuary where God's promise of a coming seed will be conceived, protected, nurtured, and then delivered to the world. It's the womb that Satan is after. Have you ever noticed how prominent the theme of barrenness is to the story of the Old Testament? That's Satan trying to stop the coming seed. What we see is that at key points in redemption's story, a barren womb seems to put an end to the story. God has to overcome barrenness for his promise to continue. We call him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, we don't have that story unless God miraculously overcomes the barrenness of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. King David is arguably the most important figure in the Old Testament story. He is the one given the promise that from him will come the king of kings whose kingdom shall have no end. King David's greater son is what we call Jesus. Well, David was an unlikely choice to be king if you know the story. Nobody would have chosen him. But he was, a cho- he was chosen and anointed king by the prophet Samuel. Well, Samuel's mother, Hannah, who was barren, went to the temple and begs God for a son, which God provides, a son who would choose David as king. Do you see? The story of the coming seed, as God predicted, is a story of Satan's enmity with the woman and his efforts to turn her womb into a tomb. But this is a battle Satan will not win, as God promised the seed would prevail. And every single female body testifies to that promise. Directly after Genesis 3.15, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your body, specifically the unique system of your body, is now cursed. But this is not a meaningless curse. The uniqueness of female suffering uniquely testifies to the saving suffering of the coming seed. Every single month, your body suffers and bleeds, proclaiming the good news of a bleeding body that will save. Under the Old Testament law, during that time of the month, the female body was declared unclean and sent out of the camp. Alone, unclean, cast off, testifying to the one who would suffer alone unclean and cast off. And when your, womb, when your womb does conceive, that conception gives way to a cross only you have been asked to bear. Your water breaks from the side of Jesus' water pours forth. Your flesh tears the torn flesh and broken body of a Savior on the cross. And then you want to talk about blood. Before we had kids, I assumed there would be blood during that delivery I had no idea all four times I nearly passed out 
But the bloody mess of childbirth testifies to the reservoir of saving blood shed by our Savior. And then, ladies, your cross of childbirth yields new life. And your joy over that new life surpasses the cross it took to produce it. Was it worth it? Every time the mother says a thousand times, yes. Well, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. If you want to know whether the cross was worth it to Jesus, just ask a mother whether her cross was worth it. And then this new life she has produced is nourished by her breasts that take blood and turn it into sustaining food. We don't just need the blood of Jesus to be born again. We need his blood sustaining us every day of this journey. Good Lord, ladies, your body is holy. And so the point I'm making is God created erotic sex, the high point of creation. Because of sin, erotic sex has devastated creation. And then God chooses to use erotic sex to save creation. But there is an unthinkable twist to the story. The prophets of God at times spoke of God's coming salvation with language that makes us uncomfortable, very scandalous, as though God himself is going to enter this sacred story of Eros. Let me give you a sampling. Isaiah 62. For as a young man marries a young woman... As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love, and compassion. Ezekiel 16, I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed, entered puberty. Your breasts had formed, your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by and I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord. You became mine. Okay, now this whole Eros thing is getting out of control. As if we haven't been uncomfortable up until this point, now we have God using the language. Well, it's about to get crazy. After everything you've heard at this conference, let's turn to Luke 1. An angel of the Lord comes to a virgin. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, we don't do to Mary what Catholics do to Mary, nor should we. But I'll say this, we don't do, to, do enough with Mary. She is the most favored female body the world has ever known. And her womb is the most hated womb in the history of Satan's hatred. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? How can this be? Since the Garden of Eden, only the erotic union between male and female can yield conception in the womb. The angel announces announces a mystery that unlocks the greatest mystery of eternal Eros. God has chosen to enter the story of Eros. 
The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, a child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Or as the Creed puts it, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The womb becomes a tabernacle of the living God, and she gives birth to the story second Adam. And Adam is after his bride. He begins his pursuit at a wedding feast. Do you remember when I read those passages from Song of Solomon in the talk? How can I forget, right? Well, did you notice the prevalence of wine to describe the intoxicating feelings of Eros? Wine has always been synonymous with erotic love. With the wedding of Cana, the wine runs out. And the first miracle Jesus performs is turning water into wine as if to say, I am here to rescue the dry story of erotic love. And then he does just that. I doubt you will ever hear these words the same. My body given for you. In what John Paul says is the greatest act of erotic love, Jesus goes to the cross to save his bride. Genesis begins with they were naked and unashamed. The first thing that happens after the fall is they cover their nakedness in shame. Well, I know that every single depiction of Jesus on the cross puts loincloths on him. But that's only because we can't handle the irreverence of our Savior naked on the cross. But friends, we need to face it. Jesus was hung naked and shamed so that one day we could recover again. The blessedness of nakedness without shame. And they laid his body in a tomb. Now remember, the aim of Satan's attack was to turn the womb into a barren tomb so that the seed of promise could not conceive Well, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 enters a tomb and turns the tomb into a womb. And what comes out of the tomb was resurrection. And now, our resurrected bridegroom is saving himself for his bride. He is waiting for the culmination of this great erotic story, the wedding feast of the Lamb, who died to save his bride. Let me describe that moment for a passage you've probably heard many times, but you're going to hear it differently now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the resurrection of all things. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You ready? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is why we will no longer have marriage or the giving of marriage and the resurrection, for we will all be married to God. I'll say it one last time. We don't sexualize the Trinity. The Trinity gave sex to understand the Trinity. But in the resurrection, we won't need the illustration that points to Trinity's love exchange. We will be welcomed into the Trinity's love exchange, and our eternal destiny is destined to be what the Trinity has eternally enjoyed. Now, 
What in the world does this grand story of Eros mean for us in our present lives? Let me close with some practical applications for our lives. The preeminence of the erotic in God's story means that the erotic must hold preeminence in our story. We have argued that the erotic, more than anything else, shows us who God is and now today shows us, shows us what God has done for us. And our job is now to proclaim our God and his gospel through the erotic within us. The first and foremost application is to all of us. In, a, in this age of fallen and chaotic eros, we bear witness to the world of properly ordered erotic love. It starts with our sexual repentance. All repentance is important, but no repentance is more significant than our repentance of sexual sin. I told you yesterday that we are simply not going to be able to argue with this cultural moment. The only hope we have is to proclaim a better story of love. Your repentance, your properly ordered eros proclaims that story. Instead of endlessly saying, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right, it's time for us to show the world the beauty of what is right. And that begins with you demonstrating that in your body. Now, I was originally going to include that in this talk, but it's too important and I just don't have the time. So what I'm going to do is extend this conference one more week. Typically, my sermon tomorrow is the final word, but I'm going to use one more Sunday, so a week from tomorrow, uh, to preach an incredibly practical sermon on sexual holiness and wholeness. So I'd love for you to be at that one as well, because I know this is obviously a struggle for all of us, and you need help learning how to properly order the erotic within you. So be there in two weeks. Today, I do have two specific applications for us, to the married among us and the singled among us. Again, our world is desperate to behold a greater love story. And the marriages in this room and the single lives in this room have the ability to tell that story. First to the married. The greatest testimony to the story we have been discussing at this conference, the greatest witness you have to this world of disordered eros, the most important thing you can do to participate in God's erotic love story is for your marriage to embody the erotic of his design. After everything I've said this week, I do not think what I'm about to say will come as a surprise to you. Your sex your one flesh union is the heart of your marriage. In fact, it's the indication of your marriage health. No sex or bad sex, I'll define that in a moment, means a bad marriage. Good sex means a good marriage. The erotic one flesh union is the meaning of marriage. Tim Keller wrote a fantastic book, we gave it away, called The Meaning of Marriage. And it's, a, it's an incredible book. I commend it to all of you. He definitely discusses sex and marriage and whatnot. But the overall premise of the book is that love is a covenant. That's true in one sense. I've used that line countless times. I'm going to use it less after my studies in theology of the body. But it's true. The idea is that love is defined less by emotions 
and circumstances and more by a covenant. That's an important word in our day and age where the idea of covenantal commitment has been obsolete. And so we recapture the importance of marriage vows, of a marriage covenant unto death. I agree with it all. But with respect to Keller, commitment is not the meaning of marriage. Erotic love is the meaning of marriage, as this conference has argued. The covenant vows are only there to provide a safe place for the erotic to flourish. And my fear is that because we have rightly defined love as a commitment, love as a covenant, we are content with that definition of marriage. I'm not going to get divorced. I'm not leaving you. I'm going to stay faithful to my vows. I'm not going anywhere. And that is what it means to love. That is untrue. God covenants with his bride to love his bride. The singular ambition of a marriage is rightly expressed erotic love. And here's the beauty of that. For that to happen, you have to do marriage really well. Please understand, it is very easy to lust in marriage. Most do. The lust that I defined last night is the selfish taking. This describes many of our sex lives, much sex in our sex lives. That's not love. For erotic love to happen, your entire marriage will have to be reordered. And this is why John Paul says that the goal in sexual union is mutual orgasm. I don't have to tell any married couple in this room to tell you how hard that is to produce. And so John Paul turns to complementarianism, of all things. And he puts all the emphasis on the husband, such as the nature of gender roles. What does submission mean? It literally means submission, meaning placing yourself under the mission of another, placing yourself under the mission of your husband. Well, well, John Paul asks, what is the mission of the husband that wives are asked to place themselves under? John Paul notes that it is for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to lay down his life for his wife. So this is what a wife is submitting to, a husband whose mission is to lay down his life for her. He does not lead her with force, manipulation, shame, or anything else we associate with patriarchy. He leads her with a cross. Simply put, she loves because he first loved her. If he plays the role of Christ in this analogy, then it means she loves because she was first loved by him. And John, John Paul plays this out in the erotic, not surprisingly. Because of the differences in male and female sexuality, the man typically needs very little to orgasm. What does a wife require? A measure of love that takes days, hours, weeks, months, in some cases of sexual trauma, years of self-sacrificing love to unlock the erotic within her. The husband's job is to bear the cross of delayed gratification to get his bride to join him in mutual erotic exchange. And the point that he makes is that what that requires guarantees a great marriage. 
The singular pursuit of a mutual erotic exchange of love requires so much sacrifice, so much intentionality, so much service, so much listening, so much seeing, so much vulnerability, so much of what every marriage is lacking and longing for. In order for for the marriage bed to be a space of love, not lust, means that the marriage must be a really, really good marriage. And that's a marriage that proclaims to our world a better story. But that's not the best story. The greatest story of erotic love has been entrusted to those walking the path of celibacy. To my single friends, you are the heroes of erotic love, and I want to show you how noble is your story. And I would even take that further and say to uh, my same-sex attracted friends who, um, who could, who could indulge um, those desires, but have chosen instead a life of celibacy. You are really the heroes of this story. Remember how the story took an interesting turn when Jesus entered in as a bridegroom to win his bride, the church? There will be no marriage or giving of marriage in the resurrection, for the icon will give way to the substance, and we will join the eternal exchange of love. Well, it's the celibate single life, not the married life, that proclaims to us this full and final destiny of the story. So why a huge portion of theology of body is devoted to celibacy. Marriage may be a picture of the gospel, but your life is a picture of the final reward of the gospel. You are quite literally saving yourself for Jesus. Saving yourself for the final reward. And we need your testimony so desperately. It's only the married who ask the question, will we get to be married in heaven? The single respond, what a stupid question. And we need that rebuke. We need to remember that eros is not ultimately fulfilled in our marriages, but in our marriage to heaven's bridegroom. I don't know what God has for you. Perhaps he wants you to get married someday, but what I want you to know is that if so, your marriage is not taking a higher calling. You are living that calling as we speak. You are telling the world, and oh, how important is this in our age. You are telling our world that the ultimate fulfillment of erotic love is found in marriage to Jesus. I'm not pretending it's an easy path. But at least I want you to see that it is a noble, high, and holy path. You are proclaiming to all of us who are married that it's not ultimately about our marriages. It's about the marriage that is to come. And nobody will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb more than those who fasted from the icon to savor the real thing. You are a witness with singular power. You are, your calling is singular in its nobility. And while he has you here, I don't know where he will have you in the future, but while he has you here, I hope you embrace how important your story is to erotic love, for it tells the ultimate meaning. Okay, we need to close. It's been a great week. I thank you so much for your attention. I want to end with an illustration from C.S. Lewis. In The Great Divorce, uh, there is a moment where he depicts a soul about to enter into the resurrection. Before he does, um, 
He must contend with the vice of his lust. This is depicted as a lizard perched on his shoulder. He meets this angel of fire who guards the entrance into resurrection glory. And before he can enter in, the angel says he's going to have to be rid of that lust lizard. Well, the soul gives a long list of excuses not to get rid of it, aided by the dragon whispering in his ear. It's going to hurt if you let him do this. Might kill you and not just the lizard. Let me consult with another opinion, so forth. Well, finally, the soul grants permission for the angel of fire to slay his lizard. The angel takes the lizard, breaks its neck, and throws it to the ground. And when this happens, the soul becomes radiant in flesh and is a new resurrected man. But that's not the best part, as only Lewis can do. The lizard on the ground is also resurrected into a great white stallion. And the gates of resurrected heaven open wide. And the resurrected man mounts what used to be his lust. But now is his resurrected stallion of Eros. And rides off into heaven upon his resurrected erotic love into life everlasting. That, brothers and sisters, is the story of this conference. Created with erotic at the center of our existence, deformed into twisted lust, but soon not just will we be resurrected, but the erotic will be resurrected, and we will ride off into an eternal destiny of erotic love. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done and are doing. We recognize that this will be processed for weeks and months, perhaps years to come. But we thank you for opening us to this story. I pray it would be received well, particularly for those bearing unique shames and struggles, perhaps hidden. As Will said, would you awaken something in us? that you have for us? And would you awaken something in our church that you have for our community? We trust you with these applications. Where my words have failed, would you give grace? Where my words have been misheard or misinterpreted, would you give grace? Just trust everything of this conference to your grace, that you, Holy Spirit, will use it well. We surrender it to you in the name of Jesus, our bridegroom, whom we love because you loved us first. We pray. Amen.